Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we have a special guest on with us. But unfortunately, my audio setup skills were not so special this time, and so the wrong mic was actually recording my voice. Thankfully, it was enough to actually pick up what I was saying, and I didn't have to re-record the interview. But nonetheless, my apologies. We will do better next time. Anyway, enjoy the interview. Today, we are going to talk about trust in a polarized age, which is the title of a new book by Kevin Vallier. Kevin Vallier is associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He works primarily in political philosophy, ethics, political economy, and the philosophy of religion. He's the author of over 40 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, four edited volumes, and three books, including Must Politics Be War, Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society, and a follow-up book, which is the topic of today's conversation, Trust in a Polarized Age. Kevin, thanks for joining us again. It's uh, always a pleasure. So this is, (laughs) it's very frequent that I end up having conversations with people that it's very timely. Yeah. Uh, And so like right now we're talking about polarization and it doesn't even really matter whether you're on the left or the right or some other you know, quadrant in the spectrum that we might be measuring, everybody kind of agrees that we're very polarized and that we're, we have diverged in our thinking and that, you know, if, if only, if only we could just be more united that, you know, our society would be better and the level of trust out there in each other and in a lot of, you know, in our politicians, in the systems that are going on, uh, that are surrounding us is changing it's a little disheartening. So, you know, there's been research done on it and there's a lot of research that has to come from multiple disciplines. And it looks like you've done a lot of that research and have sort of written a really, really solid book. I mean, I I am just very impressed with how detailed it is in ways that aren't just like making a few statements and say, oh, well, this is just the answer. And this is the explanation. Like you kind of, you take pages to defend what you're saying I would normally read people in like a paragraph or two. So I am really excited about your book. It's also less expensive than your last book. So that was that was a plus. And so we want you to talk about this. So what I'd like you to do, if you could do it within like less than a minute, what was the main thesis of the previous book, Must Politics Be War? Just for our listeners who may not have listened to the previous episode we did on that. A lot of people think that the nature of political life is basically just people beating each other up. That, that politics is... Uh, war for conquest between competing points of view. And Must Politics Be War argued that it didn't have to be the case, mm-hmm. that um, under the kind of institutions that we're familiar with of liberal democratic capitalism, you can sustain a great deal of trust between different perspectives, and that that's the way you end political war is by establishing trust. So must politics be war? Well, no, because our institutions can sustain trust in the right kind of way Mm -hmm. that we don't encounter one another politically as if we were on a battlefield, but it's diverse people who want to live together. Okay, so then clearly the uh, natural follow-up is the title Trust in a Polarized Age. So what is it that you're trying to do or continue to do in, in the second book here? 
So the first book was answering a general philosophical challenge, which is that politics as such must be war. And I argued that in you know liberal democratic capitalist societies, by and large, they were not. Under those institutional structures, they, they aren't war. But this book is about the real world. It's not about a possibility. It's not about a puzzle in, in philosophy. Um, it's can the United States overcome distrust and polarization? Mm. And how do we do it? And do we need to depart from the institutions we have in order to do it? And my book is both classically liberal and conservative, classically liberal in the sense of preserving the institutions of liberty, you know, liberal rights, democracy and the market, but then also conservative in saying that we don't have to go outside of the institutions that we have. We don't need something radically different in order to be reconciled to one another, especially we don't need to go in a populist direction. So the first book was kind of answering kind of philosophical challenge. People approach politics as war wherever they encounter it. And in this book, I'm saying, look, American politics looks pretty bad, but we can solve the warlike aspects of it. Yeah. You know, you said we don't have to go to populism. The first thing I think of when I hear and when I read your book and saw that you're saying we can use the liberal institutions that we have instead of creating new ones or whatever, is that I think of like the left who seems to want to overthrow the the capitalist system, Mm -hmm. you know, without using the phrase too loosely, you know, the sort of like the Marxist left Mm -hmm. who's like, hey, this is just terrible or whatever. I don't normally think of populism. When I think of populism, I actually, maybe I'm just misthinking about what it is, misidentifying it. Um, I think of populism as the kinds of people who want to go back to what America was, whatever that is in their mind, but they want to go back to this like age of America where we had things better off politically. I mean, that's more characteristic of right-wing populism, but I'm trying to use populism in a broader sense. So populism tends to be nationalistic. So it's not like cosmopolitan and universalistic Mm -hmm. in the way that Marxism is. It depends on a very strict in-group, out-group distinction within a country. So it says, look, there's the real America, or there's the real workers, or there's the real people that contribute to the economy. And then there's the leeches or the outgroup or the, the, the wokesters or the 1%. There's, a, there's a, an enemy in the country. Mm. And that, so it's a strong, explicit friend-enemy distinction. And on top of that, you've got hostility to open institutions, okay? So things like free trade and free immigration. And, and this is, I think, pretty important, that the establishment or the elites are corrupt and that they need to be replaced, mm. especially by the populist politician and its party. Okay. And okay. I think those things apply to both right and left wing. It's just, it's who they demonize that's different. Bernie's after the 1%, Trump's after the immigrants, you know, there's, right, but right. there's a great deal of symmetry between the way they approach politics. Right. Yeah. And I think anybody who sort of assesses it with a little less uh, bias can kind of see that. Mm-hmm. And then the fight becomes in that regard over just power. So that's equally uh, disheartening. Early on in your book, you talked about something called norm erosion. Yeah. And the idea of precedence. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you didn't use the word precedence there, but I'll just give you sort of, I want, I want you to react to sort of my thoughts on this. When I think of things being labeled as, oh, this is unprecedented, right? Like right now, for a number of reasons in 2020, there's a lot of things that are unprecedented. Right. in our country and in, our, and in the world, okay? I mean, we've had pandemics before, but it's not been like this. It's been different. You know, being inside is we're still able to be connected because of the internet. There's all kinds of things that are unprecedented. Right. And just that label 
I don't think of things that happen as unprecedented as necessarily bad. And I, I'm, I'm assuming you may not either, but no. when people talk about norm erosion, I'm thinking, well, what are what's necessarily good about certain norms? Like, is that is that inherently bad or good? And how does that relate to the issue that we're talking about here, which is like trust? Yeah. So what I'm worried about is the erosion of liberal democratic norms. So things. So take you know just blatant corruption, right? It's not like Trump's the only corrupt president we've ever had, but right. you know, giving your family members lots of power. I mean, JFK did that, right? So, you know, we've had corrupt presidents like Ulysses S. Grant or Harding. I think, I mean, I think JFK was pretty corrupt. Uh, Nixon was corrupt in a different way. So, and it's not mere moral corruption, right? It's like breaking certain kind of rules of the system. Like you don't spy on your enemies. You don't make your brother attorney general. You don't give special power and security clearance to your daughter and her husband, you know. So I don't mean to single out Trump. Sure. There are norm eroders throughout American history. But the thought is, you know, Obama was a lot better at observing liberal democratic norms. There were some things he was quite – some kinds of liberties, I think, even relative to other Democrats, he was problematical on, like, religious liberty. But the idea of avoiding certain kinds of scandal, nepotism, cheating, constant lying, you know, those are the kind of things that we think, okay, these are – not unprecedented, but they go against the informal rules that make the formal rules even function. Mm. So that's that's what I have in mind by normal erosion. Yeah. So you, you actually have a, a line in the book, falling trust creates even deeper problems, including in how we form our deepest belief in other domains. What what do you mean? Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? So uh, low trust uh, people tend to be more conspiratorial. And so they'll not only come to differing moral views with others, but the bigger issue is that they come to different empirical beliefs and not about complex matters. Like, you know, you can disagree about what kind of effects universal health care will have. Right. All right. But that's really that's actually pretty complicated. You know what I mean? Or like, how do you stop the business cycle or rein it in? Like, that's extremely complicated. Right. Like even to get, say, the Austrian point of view, you've got to study a long time to really get what's going on, you know. But when it comes to something like, is there an elite ring of pedophiles that are consuming children's bodies, you know, the QAnon theory, and the Donald Trump is working secretly behind the scenes to round them all up, like a lot of people believe that, or a lot of people think Bill Gates is going to poison us with a COVID vaccine or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the left right now, it's conspiracy theories are a lot less bizarre and elaborate, right? It's more just like Putin owns Trump. Right, and, right. you know, they banked on that for like a long time, spent a lot of effort on it. But they tend to be people tend to be more conspiratorial when they're out of power. That's one of the weird things about Trump is that the right's conspiratorial when he's in power. So, you know, the left was conspiratorial and having all these weird false beliefs when W was in power, like that he knew about 9-11. Right. Hmm. Whereas when Obama was in power, you know, the right was like, well, does he have a birth certificate, you know, or whatever. Right. So you had the truthers and. Um, for the 9-11 stuff, you had the birthers for Obama. But because Trump indulges so many conspiracy theories in the kind of like Alex Jones kind of way, we're starting to see on the right a preparedness to believe conspiracy theories no kind of no matter what. That doesn't mean the left is is especially great or wonderful, but it does seem to be less of a problem over there at the moment. So one of the things low trust does is it primes people to believe things that aren't necessarily true. Now, there are other cases where low trust will help you get it right. 
right? Like in a totalitarian system, right? Like if you have low trust in the media in China, like that's probably a good thing. So low trust isn't always bad, right? It's proper when people are untrustworthy. But I think in the U.S., our, our, our trust is oftentimes below where it ought to be. So, Yeah, I mean, I think most libertarians can identify with the idea of low trust. I mean, yes. historically, we have a low trust of our government. Yep. In, in some ways, that's sort of baked into the American mythos. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Like it's sort of like, well, we need to be skeptical. Otherwise, we won't be free. Yeah. Um, and so there's that sort of dis- but there's more than just the political trust, too. Like there's the social trust where it's more where you can almost take politics out of it and be like, we're just not trusting yep. each other in a number of important ways. Yes. And, and, and what's remarkable of that for, for libertarians, I mean, I've got a bunch of things that I've been thinking about with respect to trust in libertarianism, because it's really wide open territory in terms of people's people's views. I mean. McCloskey said some stuff about it. The Oceans said some stuff about it. Although, you know, libertarians love the Oceans. They're not libertarians. But there's so there's two kinds of trust I'm worried about. There's trust in each other, social trust, like you said, and there's political trust or trust in the government in certain ways. And I have something to say about both. Libertarians, I think, have tended to be uh, or lack um, subtlety when it comes to distrusting government. So and Rothbard did this. Like, do you hate the state? Right. But the state is, you know, millions of people and they're doing all kinds of different stuff. And so you might think you can trust some groups more than others. And it's nice to be able to do that because it can prevent government from expanding in certain kinds of ways. Right. So, like, if you can trust politicians to stay within certain rules, there may be less push, say, among progressives to create a gigantic new bureaucracy in order to control them. Mm -hmm. Right. So if libertarians so distrust in one part of government, it doesn't necessarily mean government's going to get smaller. It might mean it gets bigger. So, for instance, sowing distrust in government didn't give us the libertarian moment, right? It gave us the Trump moment. Um, and that didn't shrink government. It just changed it. It just put a new person in charge of it. So I think we thought that if people didn't trust government and could see what was really going on, they'd want less of it. Mm. And the sad thing is that it doesn't look like that's true. Um, then the other thing with social trust is that is that libertarians really need to be out there like fighting to help people trust each other in general. Because if we want more voluntary institutions to flourish, we need more trust. One of the things I say in the book is a lot of people think that involvement in civic society or certain kinds of like service organizations or stuff that libertarians love creates trust. But actually, it's probably closer to the other way around where high trust people tend to join these associations. And so if you want to have a freer and more voluntary society, you need to be out there saying, look, you're making peace, right? Pursuing a kind of ministry of reconciliation, saying, look, you know, we, we, we actually aren't so bad. What makes us bad is when we get power and let's join up, you know, let's start doing things that the welfare state is doing, but better. Right. So I think libertarians need to be subtler about mistrusting government and they need to be better about helping people to trust each other outside yeah. of politics. Yeah. Well, and we'll, we'll get to that because we obviously libertarians are very big about the market, uh, about free markets and property rights, which we'll get to here shortly because that's a, a major, mm-hmm. that would be a major endeavor um, to, or not endeavor, but that'd be a major alignment point on, yeah. on what you're saying here. So the idea of tribalism, you didn't use that word, at least I don't think yeah. you did in the last few minutes, but there's this like growing tribalism that where it's like my my views, my candidate, my ideology, whatever, is better than yours. And if we could just get rid of like the in-group, out-group stuff that you talked about much earlier yep. in, in this conversation, it's like there's there's falling trust, right? Mm-hmm. People are diverging. And 
there's this retreat into new identities mm-hmm. instead of reforming old ones. That's what you say in the book. Yep. And can you just elaborate a little bit more on that before we move on to some some of the other social trust factors? Because I want to know what you think these new identities people are choosing from a level like I know from like from the armchair, like what it looks like is happening. Mm-hmm. But I kind of want to get more like what's the professional opinion of what's going on in, in terms of these actual identities. So most of the new identity formation is going on on the left. And what's going on is because they're secularizing so quickly, mm-hmm. they are adopting new secular kinds of identities. Right. So heavily heavily identifying with your gender expression. Pretty new, but it's it's expanding, right? Or heavily identifying with pursuing social justice, whatever that is, right? Like there are Marxists who identified with doing social justice, Jesuits in, in, in a way, but, you know, Marxists had a deeper kind of overall vision as did, you know, historical left-wing Christians had, you know, a broader vision, right? Whereas for many young progressives, it's just like, I'm for this cause and I'm for this group. Um, And that's the deepest thing about them, right? According to them. Um, You know, when I teach undergraduate students, I mean, they come in and they've watched YouTube or listened to a bunch of podcasts and they have a cause. But, you know, they enter my philosophy of religion class and almost all of them are atheists, but they have no idea that there are arguments for God's existence. So, like, they don't know anything about Christianity. Like, I had a student, you know, ask me who Satan was last year. Mm. Um, you know, the level of religious understanding has fallen. And what, so what people are doing is they're investing less in religious identity and more in political and gender and sexuality and, um, you know, those kinds of identities. Mm. Um, so, so that's a creation of new identities. Now on the right, one of the things that's going on is that I think that religious identity, genuine Christian identity is, is falling. People um, identify more deeply with being a conservative or a Republican than they do with being a Christian, whereas, you know, 50 years ago, it might have been the reverse. So they're kind of switching the ordering of their identities. So they're old identities, but 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 the political is coming to matter more than the religious, whereas on the left, they're getting rid of the religious entirely um, and replacing it with a religion substitute. Mm-hmm. Okay. But these are polarizing identities because they're they're essentially political ones. And so when you tell someone, hey, you're wrong politically, they think you're invalidating them as a person rather than just disagreeing with them on some policy issue. And that makes them angry. Right. And it makes them yeah, not trust yeah. you. And, it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it doesn't take very long to to realize how polarized we become and how much it's just it's yeah, it's. And, and the emotional dimension of it is huge. Right. I mean, a lot of people think that polarization is just uh, we're disagreeing more of the issues. But that's issue-based polarization. There's also affective, like A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, right? Yeah. Like a- affect polarization, yeah. where we, we don't just disagree with others. We hate them. We mistrust them. We're suspicious uh, of them. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, that's something that I think, you know, uh, in particular, Christians have to think harder about is, you know, how to be political peacemakers under these circumstances. Um, yeah. where there's so yeah. much hate. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, as, as you know, with our several uh, dinners under our belt, this is sort of a hobby horse of the two of us that we like to, yes. you know, like Christians need to be political peacemakers. And yeah, that is, that is incredibly difficult. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the factors in the erosion of trust. Um, there's, there's a lot of issues, like if somebody were just sort of skimming through the sub chapter titles in your book, they'd see things like economic inequality, communism, monarchy. Yeah. There's a lot of different things in there that it's like, oh, hey, he talks about these things. And those are all related in your book about 
what are the connection between things like economic equality and whether or not a society has high trust. So give us a little bit of a, maybe a higher level view of what's going on in, in that literature and what conclusions you come to. Yeah. So um, the second chapter of the book, which is the one that I think people will maybe find the most valuable, is a really big survey of social and political trust in three regards. First, the concept of both, which is oftentimes left unclear, but y'all won't, don't need to worry about that as much, the listeners, as the causes and consequences of both. And the interesting thing is we don't know a huge amount about the causes of social trust, but we know a lot about its consequences. And we don't know a huge amount about what political trust helps us do, but we know a huge amount about what affects it. So what I can do is just start to work through uh, the, the list and basically here's kind of how I'm thinking. Yeah. About it. Well, I, there's three that I had pulled out that I wanted to yeah, talk okay. about. Okay. Yeah. And, let's and go through your list instead of mine. Well, yeah. and what, well, no, that's fine. Uh, and obviously, I mean, we don't have enough. I mean, I want people to read the book and we also don't have enough time to talk about all of them. But yeah, the, the big one that is sort of on the minds of everybody, especially if you've even heard a progressive say anything at all is you know, for five seconds, it's economic inequality. And like that's yes. a huge issue for the left. That's and right. I think most, I can't speak for everyone, of course, but I think most libertarians have sort of the standard answer that, you know, economic inequality is not inherently bad. There are other factors, you know, yep. cronyism makes that makes yep. that a big problem. It is a big yep. contributor. Blah, it's blah, how blah, you blah. get to the inequality that's, that's morally relevant, not that there is any. Correct. And that, and, and but what you're talking about in this is that we're how does it relate to social and political trust? That's what I want to hear from you on. That okay, one. great. Um, so this is actually pretty interesting because it's one of the places where I don't go with the consensus of the literature. The consent in the literature is that there. Well, okay. So first, there's a very clear uh, correlation, very strong one between measures of economic inequality on the one hand, and then the kind of survey-based trust measures that we have in the, in the literature, both of which are really good statistical instruments uh, in their own domains. And so what most folks in the trust literature being on the left think is that the, close, the more people are alike in terms of their wealth levels, the more likely they're going to, to be able to trust each other. So causations from economic inequality to social trust. There's even one famous book on it that at the very last word or the very last sentence is if you want to get trust, get equal. Mm. There's a couple of problems with this line. For one thing, these are the same people who don't want to say that diversity, uh, ethnic diversity hurts social trust very much. And it's not clear at all to me why economic inequality would hurt social trust when uh, ethnic diversity does not. Right? Because they're both stories of like, oh, people are different from me, so I can't trust them. Right. Um, and so I think their attitudes are, are kind of different. They want yeah. there to be racial diversity and high trust, but they don't want there to be economic diversity and high trust. Yeah. So the, some economists that I've worked with, they're Scandinavian. There's a lot of Scandinavian academics working on trust because they're trying to <laughs> figure out why they have so much of it. Um, <laughs> and their view is that what social trust does is it makes people friendlier to redistribution. Now, Libertarians are kind of worried. They're like, hey, redistribution is bad. Um, but let me let me um, caution this in a couple of ways. First, when people trust each other more, redistribution is less involuntary. Redistributive taxation for Swedes is less involuntary because they're not as opposed to it as Americans are. They're more they're more. If you ask them, hey, 
you know, if, if you made taxation voluntary, right, you get a lot more compliance with it in Sweden than you get in the U.S. because they think, well, you know, it's going to people who need it, right? So right. I actually think in Sweden, you know, if taxes became user fees, people would still pay a lot of taxes, whereas in the U.S. it would completely collapse. So that's number one. If you have really high trust society, like a much broader range of interactions, a huge range of interactions are more voluntary. So that's number one. It doesn't make it, you know, redistribution great. But the other thing that's cool about high trust is that people are less in need of monitoring each other. And so it makes it a lot easier to deregulate. So Sweden has gone through a period of massive deregulation so that if you factor out their government spending and taxation rates, they have freer markets than the U.S. does. That angle has been pretty popular in libertarian circles in the last couple of years since the rise of Bernie to point out that that that's so I, I think that we're all kind of familiar with the fact that they're probably more free market than than the United States. That, that's right. But what I'd add to this discussion that's, I think, new to your listeners is the idea that Sweden's policies are more the result of its high trust than the other way around. Mm. So if you have high levels of trust, yeah, you're going to get more redistribution. But you're also going to get freer markets because in general, people are just less worried about each other being bad. So they're less worried about wasting the, the, the redistribution, but they're also less worried about, you know, business and being corrupt. Right. Like a Swedish politician could say, hey, we need to cut taxes to raise growth. And people will be like, hey, I don't believe that. But in the United States, you know, what did Pelosi say about Trump's tax cuts, that it was like one of the worst bills in the history of the country or something like that? I mean, yeah. that's pretty hysterical. Whereas, you know, in a many Western European countries, people can propose stuff and, other, and people say, well, we just don't think that's true. Right. So I think, you know, we want libertarians should support more trust. There will be more redistribution, I think, but there'll be lots of other things that are better. For instance, a lot less crime, a lot less corruption. You know, there are going to be fewer. Pro- in general, more trust means fewer property rights violations. And uh, even though it isn't sort of across the board good from a libertarian perspective. When you say violations, are you talking about like reduction in crime or like violations in like the state doesn't violate property rights? Oh, well, I actually think it does lower state violations of property rights, even though there's more going to be more taxation in some respects. Mm -hmm. um, I think the state will mess with property in other ways less, like by being more routine the rule of law. These are things that, you know, that are predictable to what they're trying to do in terms of just, just shaking people down, just like the standard kind of like mob behavior that the state often engages in yeah. will be reduced. One of the things that, that higher trust societies are better at is being less corrupt. And that means many parts of the society are less corrupt, like the police. Uh, so, you know, if you have more, if you have more trust, oftentimes you have more trust in the legal system. And, and it turns out that, you know, I would rather have Swedish police than our police, you know what I mean? Or Swedish criminal justice system. Like, it seems crazy to us that, you know, that mass shooter over there went to, has like a 20 year, what's that guy's name? Uh, Anders, what was his name? Um, uh, but, yeah, yeah, well, basically like we're both people are in jail far less, <laughs> people are in jail far less often. Yeah. Like, you know, if you trust people more, like the plausibility that you reform or turn your life around is better. Yeah, like there's yeah. just lots of nasty things the state does that high levels of trust in each other, high levels of trust in each other, um, tends to promote. So I think in general, libertarians like more association joining. In general, libertarians should be like ninety percent excited about increasing trust, social trust. Yeah, okay. here's another reason they should be super, super, super excited, like super happy and eager. More trust means more exchange. 
And that means faster economic growth. So that's a big thing to consider. That's a big thing to consider. We know how much growth matters. We know that it, when it compounds over time, the changes over a few decades are staggering. And, you know, you want more of that. Yeah, we do. So I said I had a list of a number of things here, but I want to get to the, um, uh, the market stuff because it's kind yes. of a nice segue based on what you just, what you just said. There are good consequences of high social trust, right? Yeah. And that isn't just about trust in the government. I think in a lot of ways, libertarians, we have two things that we think about. We think about markets, we think about government. We think about yeah. what is our relationship with the government, what is our relationship with each other. That's great. So let's talk about markets. Yep. Private property, you have this like long list of like, here's what private property is, which I, mm-hmm. I found um, it was like, oh, hey, there's two items. Oh, I turned the page and there's a few more. And so yeah. the general idea of property rights, I mean, you're obviously defending against things. I mean, you're writing for people to learn and you're also writing so that your colleagues are like understanding exactly what you mean within yes. parameters and, and know uh, how to how to argue with you well, <laughs> right, yeah. uh, to keep it going. So you're defending yourself and you're explaining yourself uh, in, in one thing. Um, so d- define property rights for us in, in your conception without making it the 30 sentence long one, but, um, well, in in just kind of the summary, because I know that I think we take for granted what we think it is. The reason for the big definition of property is that in most property rights arrangements, you can sort of own things in different degrees and ways. So like one thing you can do is have a right to gain income from that thing. And another way you have a right to keep people from using that thing. And those are, those are different, but, a lot of libertarians, you know, so so what I can do is I can just kind of like describe, like get to that list. The reason that it's important to have the list is that property rights in libertarians' minds is just this one big thing. When in fact, in actual practice, we have all kinds of like semi-property rights over things because we've traded some other part of a property right to someone else by way of yeah. contract. Well, it's that subtle so, thing you were talking about, too. At least it's yeah, a, so, so when libertarians talk about property rights, they talk about what I call full property property rights. You can use it however you want. You can exclude people from using it. You can manage it however you want. You can get compensated for it. You can destroy it. You can rent it. You can't. It can't be removed from you, right? You don't lose it you know, whenever you don't use it. You can rent it. You can sell it, right? You can transfer it. So yeah. for the libertarian, a property right over something is to have all of those things. Whereas in the kind of more like real world of property law, you might have immunity from expropriation from uh, a criminal, but you might have sold someone's uh, right to use it, right? You might have rented it out, right? Or you might have, you know, you might have sold it under certain conditions. Like the Catholic Church will sell hospitals to private firms on the condition that they don't have abortions and stuff like that in there. Mm -hmm. So, you know. The owner has, by freedom of contract, does not exactly have a full property right because the owner of the hospital can't choose for there to be abortions there. So the reason I do that is I want libertarians to see that property rights are actually pretty complicated um, in the real world. And you can defend private property rights in a more piecemeal way, in a way that was more compelling to others. But what really matters, you know, for our purposes is just having the sense that kind of full, robust property rights not just over personal property, but over productive property, that is capital, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. really, um, is really, really important. And one reason to care about trust is that it helps to build that. I also yeah. think that markets help trust, but the, um, the evidence is thinner there. But I do think that when the you have- The evidence is thinner that markets 
that markets help trust versus the other way around? Well, they both they work in both directions. So, okay, but but the primary reason I think that markets help trust is because people have routine, predictable, nonviolent interactions with each other on things that matter. Yes. So so, but it's not the case. It looks like that a society, if it gets wealthier or grows faster, will become more trusting. So if you look at Swedish trust, it's become much wealthier since we started measuring Swedish trust in 1980. Mm-hmm. But its social trust level is stable. In fact, almost every country where we have measures of social trust, social trust is stable. Denmark's gone up a bu- bunch. We don't know why. The U.S. has gone down a good bit. And, you know, I've got a hypothesis as to why that is. It has to do with us polarizing. And there's all kinds of different ways in which trust and polarization are intermingled. So having markets doesn't help trust in the sense that it makes us wealthier. But having more trust will mean that we will have more markets. So and we'll have more exchange. So we will have more growth. We will be wealthier. We will be less likely to interfere with markets, right, to regulate markets. Um, So another reason to try to figure out, you know, how to get more social trust is um, because I think markets are going to work better. They're going to be more effective. There's going to be more growth. But the cool thing about markets is that people can peacefully interact with each other. They can come to say, hey, this is a pretty trustworthy person. They didn't, you know, they didn't uh, defraud me, right? Um, yeah. So that's pretty important is having legal property rights in the sense that the state regularly protects people's holdings such that people can interact in productive ways. Yeah. So as, as we wrap up, I want to I ask you something that I think – I always want to make sure that our listeners have something that they can feel like they're not, they weren't just informed, but that there's something to act upon. Um, and there's a lot of like, if we, if we try to reform the liberal institutions that we have, okay, mm-hmm. that just sounds really big, vague and well, just vote for the right people. Or, you know, if you're inclined, run for office and help reform them. But like, yeah. You, you say in your book that it requires more than that. Uh-huh. Um, it is clearly the answer isn't to vote right. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. You need really serious reforms of different institutions to in the medium term. But it's also the case that I say at the end that it isn't enough just to have political reform. There has to be a reform of the heart. And too many people have indulged their own hatred and venom that they would never express towards someone of a different faith, someone of a different gender, or different race, that they will express towards people with different politics. You know, do you remember those bumper stickers like annoy a liberal, work hard and be happy or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Um, or like annoy a conservative, like be informed, be happy or whatever. Like just, yeah, right. just imagine you replace that with like annoy a Jew, work hard, be happy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like we, we would, would never, we would, we would probably not tolerate it as much. Yeah, that was pretty monstrous. It's repulsive. But why do we, why do we think it's okay to, to treat political differences that way? Yeah, we're political, right. we're political bigots. And if hate, racial hate corrupts our soul, if religious hate corrupts our soul, why don't, why wouldn't political hate corrupt our soul? And the one of the ways that I think that's ways that Christianity and libertarianism intersect is that they tell us that there are other things that matter more than politics. Um, and I know this is, you know, this is your wheelhouse, um, but it's still worth repeating. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, um, I, it, yes, I agree. Uh, I think it's making it harder for us to trust each other that we have political differences. And one reason to, you know, try to limit government in various ways is that we'll have to more peacefully interact. And then when we see each other peacefully interacting, we'll be able to trust each other more. Hmm. So I do think there's a relationship between 
predictable free interactions and people being able to trust each other. And I do think they reinforce each other, but getting more social trust is, we don't really know how to do it. Um, One thing I'm hoping for, and this again, will this will maybe horrify some of your listeners, but I don't think it'd be too bad. If the Democrats win big time um, in the fall, they've got this anti-corruption bill, um, HR one that they're looking at. And, there's a lot of restrictions on like rent kind of rent seeking behavior. Like it's a lot harder to get a, like if you're a politician, it's going to be harder for you to get a job in the private sector. Mm. Um, you know, if they pass this, they're also going to expand voting rights a whole bunch and libertarians oftentimes, I, I think un- unfortunately have mixed feelings about that, but I do think, you know, making it easier for someone who like committed a crime 20 years ago to vote, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so it's got some stuff libertarians will like, some stuff libertarians won't like. But I think reforming corruption um, and making it the case that, you know, there's less, you know, uh, corruption in politics, I think is really, really important for building social trust. Yeah. So even if you don't like the state, like you don't want it to be a crappy banana republic state. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you would rather if you're going to have a state like you would rather live in, you know, Sweden or Singapore than you would in Brazil. Right. Um, or in Iran, um, you know, or many African countries where trust is extremely low. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, we worry about the state, but we need to distinguish between different kinds of states. And, and sometimes some states are more trustworthy with respect to, you know, morality than others. Um, yeah. and I think as long as we're going to have a state, you know, there's better and worse. So, you know, we want to promote the state being trustworthy so that we can trust it, but, our long run goal is to greatly limit or eliminate it. But I don't think the road to f- true freedom or complete freedom runs through low trust societies. That would be like my message for libertarians. Like you, you yeah. you're not going to get to freedom by sowing distrust. Like it's, it's just not going to work. Now, you know, I do think we should have a good bit of distrust in particular politicians. That's fine. <laughs> it's distrusting the whole system that you want to work on. Yeah. You know, because democracy is better for freedom than monarchy. Like, I don't care how many HAPA people there are out there. It's just not empirically true. And I don't care how praxeological you make the argument. It doesn't even work there. So, you know, people are freer in democracies. They're more likely to eat. They're more likely to have markets. Going to monarchy right now with a real powerful monarch, it wouldn't, that's not how it would go. We, we would have a dictator. And that would be worse in lots of ways. So I think, you know, when we're trying to figure out the path to freedom, we have to be a lot more careful. We have to be very informed about the social sciences because, you know, one of the points my late dissertation advisor, Jerry Gauss, would make is that one of the things we know the least about is how to transition from current circumstances to our ideal. Yeah. And I think we need to be humble about how we get to freedom. And what I'm telling libertarians is that sowing distrust in a kind of generic, flat-footed way uh, in others, but, you know, like you say, oh, those statists, you can't trust them. Well, stop saying that, you know, like, you can trust them in most right, like, ways. As if calling them, that's going to make them want to listen to you. Yeah, I know. Or, but but just libertarians being like, oh, status, I can't stand status. Like, you're not any better than the annoy a liberal people when you do that. Like, <laughs> most people who are for the state, you know, there's a lot of the arguments they don't know. Or they're actually pretty informed and they just disagree with us. Now, there are people who are rotten out there. There's bad people. Like, of course, there's bad people. But we shouldn't be saying, look, these are bad, terrible people. I don't want to trust them because for the state, because the state is unjust. And so they must be bad people for supporting them. Like there are libertarians out there that say that all the time and they should just stop. Um, I think it's really destructive. 
And also, I mean, if you put the Christian element in, it's just like manifest that you shouldn't treat people that way. Yeah, well, you're preaching to me too because I have those those impulses <laughs> from time to time. So that that's all good. Yeah. Um. So for for all you Hoppians who want to write to Kevin, can Kevin? Can you tell send me angry hate mail? I would yeah. love to hear from you. And if you're <laughs> so under twenty one, if you're under twenty one, I especially encourage you to do so because you might change your mind. We know that just from you know, uh, <laughs> you know. You just gave every every person able able to drink the freedom to say, I'm over 21. I'm not going to change my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, they should still try it, but it, it happens less. I mean, really, that's crazy. You know, if you're a young Hoppian, I was there with you when I was 19 and you know, let's talk. Yeah. Um, All right. So, so they can reach you at, at, they can reach you and buy the book at where Kevin Vallier.com. So it's just my first and last name.com. And you can, there's the, the book page just immediately comes up when you go there. And you can go and you can buy it from your favorite bookseller. Yep. Uh, it's only 25 bucks if you buy it through Oxford's website, you know, with a discount. So, you know, it's it's pretty cheap. And I think it's a one-stop shop for if you want to know how to, what trust is all about, what it causes, what causes it, when it's good, when it's a problem. That is a, it's a really good book, I think, yeah. for you to take a look at. Yeah, I, I'll second that. I think it's really good. It's a little under 300 pages, so it's not, you know, it's not going to take you years to read. And Kevin is one of my favorite writers, and I always get to reread his stuff and get more get more out of it. So, Kevin, thanks for creating such an important work and for talking with us on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 